Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Sid Jaspel, Director at Advanced Tooling Service, a Coventry-based company which manufactures cutting tools. Sid, hello. Hello, Matthew. Thank you for coming on the program today. We might as well dive straight in. What does the word leader mean to you? Um, a simple thing, really. It's someone in charge of other people. Someone mm-hmm. who makes decisions for other people. And how would you describe your personal leadership strategy? Okay. Well, if, Matthew, if I can just start with a little bit of background that... Um, I now run a company with uh, just around 50 people. Um, but my background was that um, I worked for an international company uh, called Sandvik, who were manufacturers of tungsten carbide. They're the world leader. Mm-hmm. And there I was in charge of their methods development department, which was to improve the me- me- manufacturing uh, methods to make ourselves more efficient. So in that way, um, when you came up with a particular improvement, you had to sell the idea to the person on the shop floor. And that's not always easy. And that's where your leadership skills and all the other things that you can put together, you have to use. Because if somebody's been doing something for many years and you try and tell them that you want them to change, it's not always very easy. So my work involved liaising with my own engineers who work for me, the workers on the shop floor who were obviously uh, manufacturing, and then my own peers, the people who I reported to. So it's quite a, a complex network uh, that I had to uh, handle. I guess... I was quite a young man at the time when I started this and uh, I spent a lot of sleepless nights thinking how I would handle people who were older than me and probably more experienced than myself as well. And I was always looking for what you would say is a magic solution to all your problems. You know, there must be some formula, some theory that will assist me to get through this. And I have to say the closest thing I found was when I was on a flight, uh, uh, on a night flight and not feeling very sleepy, I opened one of these onboard magazines. And there I seen an article, but the basics of it, it said, say what you believe and believe what you say. And that, I have to say, uh, Matthew, really stuck with me. I thought, it's a simple thing, but... It does make a lot of sense. And what it meant Mm -hmm. to me was to try to deal with people in an honest way. Uh, People respect the truth, even though it may hurt them at the time. And I've tried to live with this as a guiding principle, but it would be wrong of me to say that it works every single time because it doesn't. But at least uh, you feel that when you walk away from the situation, you know that you have said, what you believe and it may be right and it may be wrong you never know that but it's an honest appraisal of the situation at the time the other thing 
that I learned in my early years was from a man called Phil Jerome, who I reported directly to. And uh, Matthew Hughes, a mountain of a man, six foot five and built like a rugby player who could actually frighten the life out of you by just looking at you. <laughs> and I reported to Phil Jerome on a day-to-day basis. And this meant it was inevitable that we were always going to have our differences. And in one meeting, the argument got quite fiery. It was over a manufacturing uh, issue. And uh, in, it got so fiery that Phil Jerome actually cancelled the meeting. And he turned to me and he said, I still remember these words. I'm not going to have a prima donna working for me. You know, quite a bold statement by him. And uh, I thought, an early end to my managerial career. And I thought at the time, until a couple of days later, he called me into his office for what I thought was going to be to serve me my P45. Instead, he told me to sit down and said to me, look, Sid, no job is worth falling out over with your colleagues. If you have an argument which involves a fallout, just remember that the other person is as passionate about his views as you are about yours. Always respect that and try to find the middle ground, as it is always there if you care to look. So, Matthew, I worked for Sandvik for 15 years and really, really enjoyed my time there and really enjoyed my stay. I've got on well with people, all the people that were above me, people that were below me. But I guess now that brings me on to today. And I'm now nearly 73. And I learn something new every day. You know, being the older person doesn't always make you automatically make you the wiser person. And to some degree now, I've sidelined myself in a company that I've started to let the new directors take over and build the company up even more. But again, uh, another aspect of leadership for me is caring for the workforce. That's a very easy thing to say, and most people say they do. But my practice is that every morning before I get to my own office, I go around and talk to each of my employees and I ask them how they are and how their family are and show an interest in what their lives are about. But what I'd say to that is that it's no good if you just treat this as a token gesture or the question just rolls off the tongue, but it doesn't mean anything. For example, if someone says to me, look, my son's being bullied at school, then you have to remember that and keep showing the concern until they resolve the issue and you have to ask them if there's any way that you can assist. You know, do they want to have time off work? You know, is there any other way that we can help to try and get them through this problem? See, I think the problem is that most people have worries. To you, there may not be a lot, but to the employee, they can be quite big. And these type of problems distract the person and may cause an accident at the worst or even scrappage you know, uh, of work, which is something that is obviously not desirable. The other part, I guess, is a simple thing, and it, I always have my office door open. Apart from today where it's closed or I have a meeting, <laughs> but my office door is always open, and I always say to everybody who works for me, come up, 
if you've got a problem, don't be shy. Just tell me what it is and let me see if I can help you with it. And I guess um, the other thing is about management is respect. Now, you have to earn respect. The fact that you employ people doesn't mean they're going to respect you. You have to show them respect to get respect back. So I always respond to uh, any problem in a, in a positive way to try and find out, A, if there is a problem, B, if there's anything I can do to assist them, C, to make their lives easier. You know, because I know people aren't going to come whistling into work at 7.30 in the morning and do cartwheels at 4.30 when they go home. But you have to make sure that people do have a certain amount of enjoyment when they come to work. And as a, whenever I interview people, I will always say to them, look, I don't guarantee we're going to be the best paid company that you're ever going to work at, but we will make it our part of our uh, issue to make sure that you are actually happy when you're here. And I think that's worked. You know, I really believe that that has worked for me. And I guess the last thing is, which is, again, common sense, Matthew, it is just to be fair with people. You know, mm-hmm. don't, they are people who are there working for you, but they're, they're not your slaves. You know, they are people who have got lives, they've got families, and to try and treat them in that way. Well, Sid, um, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you. Unfortunately, our time together is drawn to its close, but I would love to have you back on the program at some point in the near future to discuss everything that's going on at Advanced Tooling Service. Thank you, Sid. My pleasure, Matthew. My pleasure. That was Sid Jaspel. Director at Advanced Tooling Service. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Uh, we're joined uh, today by uh, David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett, former Home Secretary, former Education Secretary. David, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, it's always a pleasure. But uh, since we are talking around the theme of leadership, it would be remiss of me if we didn't start with the leadership election going on in the Labour Party. Apart from, I'm sure you're delight that a certain someone is leaving a post. What are your thoughts on it so far? Well, I think the party membership have got to make a very clear decision. Uh, are they in, in the stands watching or are they on the pitch playing? And if they want to play, then the two candidates that are in for the future are Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer. I'm personally backing Lisa because I think she's a brave woman with a tremendous amount to give. She's got really good, positive ideas. I like them because they're about building from the community rather than command and control from the centre. They're about a new form of social democracy and socialism rather than trying to replicate a failed past. And she can reach out to people that others can't. So... I'm I'm giving her my backing. I think Keir Starmer is very professional, mm. very able, and presents extremely well. And I, I hope that one of those two uh, actually come through in the election on the 4th of April. Uh, there has been a lot of criticism, especially from uh, four uh, candidates a little further left um, than them, who've criticised even the last Labour uh, uh, government as being part of 40 years of Thatcherism. Yes, I think it's really unfortunate Uh, particularly when new MPs come in having seen large 
swathes of their colleagues lose their seat, uh, to roll up the 13 years of Labour government with everything that I'm so proud of. I mean, I, we, we were not neoliberals or anything like it. We were able, in the first 10 years certainly, uh, which I played a part in, to be able to turn the economy around, to invest in health and education, to be able to transform people's aspirations and their hopes for the the future. And that included ensuring people got the minimum wage, which we never had before. Sure start to nurture youngsters from the most moment they were born, transformation in the quality of education. And all these things actually add up to helping people to improve and change their lives for the better. And anyone who thinks that's not good and that isn't a government to be proud of needs to answer the question, what chivalet is it that you would want that would actually have done more to change those lives? I can think of two or three myself in terms Mm. of uh, dramatically taking on uh, inequality, although half a million children were taken out of poverty in those years. I can think of being even tougher on crime, even though I was dubbed as one of the tougher Home Secretaries because the people that I cared about most were on the whole, not exclusively, but mainly the victims of crime. I can think about taking on the very, very rapidly growing transnational power of the big tech companies, which we still need to work through in terms of how we do that from a, a single nation just off the coast of Europe, and how we work internationally without getting caught up in wars we don't want to be involved in. But how, how are we international in a way that ensures that we play our part in making a better life for humanity as a whole rather than disengaging and becoming alien from the rest of the world? Th- those are big questions for the social democratic left, particularly with artificial intelligence and robotics changing the world of work forever, I think, in the next 20 years. Uh, an ageing population. Labour got 18% of the over 65 vote in the general election. Just 18%. It's staggeringly... It's extraordinary. Staggeringly bad. Um, and and climate think- change, which we all know is going to be either a big gain or a terrific political trauma. We've got to take people with us. No matter uh, which political party it is, the changes that will occur in this decade especially will determine their future ideologies, certainly. And sp- speaking of your time... Uh, as Home Section in government. Um, you worked with so many different individuals of all political stripes and none at all. Is there someone, and on the theme of leadership, that stands out to you that embodies some of those qualities you described earlier? Yes, I mean, I, it's on the theme of bottom-up, it was some of the most inspiring uh, head teachers and classroom teachers who, in really, really difficult circumstances, were actually transforming the life chances of children. By inspiring those children to want to learn, to, if you like, lighting a candle inside them, uh, giving them a, a, a window on the world, which created an inquiring mind and an understanding that the world was their oyster, that they could do things with support. My, my philosophy has always been mutuality and reciprocity. We, we need mutuality to support each other. We need reciprocity in terms of understanding that we don't just take, we, we give a lot as well. And I suppose that really comes down to uh, if you're prepared to do something for yourself, we're prepared to do something to help you. And that's fundamentally in education, but it is in all sorts of walks of life as well. So you can have innovation, you can have 
entrepreneurship and creativity in, in business. You can have the way in which people turn things around for themselves. Small businesses have done that. The contribution to uh, new ways of doing things, of thinking differently about our economy. Th those are all grit to the mill. Those are the things we need to do. And we can do them together. It's not that you're on the side of the devil if you're an entrepreneur or you're on the side of the angels if you work in public services. We, we are mm. dependent on each other. Oh, you can't have one without the other. Yes. Um, and I think to coin a term, uh, uh, extraordinary, ordinary people, and especially when it comes to giving your answer, David, to uh, teachers, to carers, people that honestly don't get the recognition they deserve on a day-to-day -day basis... And without them, half of society wouldn't function. Completely. I, I call it civil society, which functions even when government isn't functioning. It's, what, it's the glue that holds things together. It's people working and living and having their being together and recognising that they are dependent on each other. I, I've obviously met incredibly inspiring leaders in a different vein. I was very fortunate to have met Nelson Mandela three times uh, I met Bill Clinton a number of times, both of whom, in very, very different ways, were inspiring leaders. I've met people in leadership positions who couldn't take a decision to save their lives. Uh, Tony Blair famously said in the, his conference speech the year before he stood down as Prime Minister, and I, I knew exactly what he meant. He said the worst ministers are those who won't take decisions, and anyone in a leadership role needs to, A, know why they're there, what they intend to do with the uh, authority mm. that goes with being a leader and a manager, and then how to draw people in as a team to be able to implement it so that it's a team approach. It's not someone out on a white charger. It's someone who can mobilise, motivate, provide incentives for people to feel that they're part of the solution as well. Uh, and I think whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's sport, it's exactly those qualities that you need to succeed in any of them. Yes, it is. And if people recognise that and they have a clear idea themselves, they, they have and build, because you can't build, leadership qualities. They know how to manage their own time and their own emotions because we all, from time to time, feel like really losing our temper and... I don't pretend for a minute over the years <laughs> that, that I haven't. How, how to control your own feelings and emotion and how to bring the best out in other people's. How, how you work out that people who are really good don't threaten you, they compliment you. People who have complementary skills to you are really valuable. And I suppose the ability to listen, not just for its own sake, mm. but to listen because you are conglomerating, I suppose you would call it plagiarising, thoughts, ideas, ways forward from everyone around you. I often think that um, football managers wouldn't do too bad a job if they actually talked to the fans after the game. Well, everyone <laughs> knows, uh, David, you know, you're a big Sheffield Wednesday fan. It I know. can't be easy having to hear the it, praise of Chris Wilder and Sheffield United every week after no, week. No, it isn't, although it's damn good for Sheffield, so I'm being a bit magnanimous at the moment. That's very good about of you. Sheffield United in the Premier League, because it, it, it does change. It lifts the image of the city internationally. If you're Not just because it's Sheffield United, but because if you're playing Liverpool uh, and you're playing Man City then that's a global audience. You're immediately beamed across the world. So that's good. I, I, I could cry sometimes. We can, 
we can beat uh, Brighton, Premier League side in the FA Cup at Brighton. We can beat Leeds at Leeds. I was there when we beat them 2-0 in January. And then you can lose 5-0. And then five you nil lose 5-0 yeah. at home to Blackburn and half the fans were out of the ground by... By half time. What, what would a manager blanket say in this situation? I, I would have asked myself a very simple question. What went wrong with motivating those players so that when they came out on the field, they walked instead of ran? They didn't have any of the passion they'd had the week before at Leeds. They showed no drive and incentive to take hold of the game. What, what went wrong with the same players who'd played very well the week previously? And... If you could answer that question, and there may have something may have happened, who knows? Something during the morning before the game started, something may have gone sour. You get the answer to that question, and you then start to ensure that we never, never do this again. Yeah, well, I'm a Chelsea fan, so I'm beginning to feel your pain at the minute. Um, <laughs> but I would like to pick up on another point you just made, actually, David, about choosing a strong team, people that compliment you. A lot of criticism that. Uh, Theresa May got as Prime Minister was that she tended not to pick perhaps the more ambitious, the more uh, 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 people uh, uh, ministers that might well challenge her. One of Boris Johnson's, for all his faults, uh, he has been said in the past, he's a man that picks people that are good at their briefs. Do you agree with that? Well, I'll reserve judgment on that until I see the outcome of the reshuffle, which as we record this podcast has not yet happened mm. and I imagine I, I would be very surprised if he didn't have quite a brutal reshuffle not just to get people in who he likes but people who are going to be really sparky and able and clear at doing the job because you can have all the best ideas in the world you can pronounce on what you're going to do but if you haven't got leaders in those departments prepared to do it if they're just toadies by the way and there is a tendency a new mm. prime minister large majority got to be very careful that you don't pick people because you're receiving the echo of your own voice uh, when you're speaking to them but get able people in I, I, I won't comment on some of the less able but there are <laughs> clearly in the cabinet as i speak at the moment people who are really just not up to it i mean incidentally anyone who won't be cross-examined by decent journalists on the BBC, changed their minds recently about mm. Sky, <clears throat> isn't worth their salt. If, but part of being cross-questioned is to demonstrate to yourself that you've got a grasp of your brief, that you believe in it, and that you can persuade people of it. And if you can't do that under real cross-examination rather than sitting on the sofa for, a, mm. for a, a, an easy morning television programme... Get out of the business, you know. Don't don't do without it without a doubt. Yeah, uh, that's and also I should add that is how Lisa uh, Wallstripes earn that respect in the first place. But there is a question, isn't I'm there? I'm trying to answer the questions. That's, <laughs> that's what I always tried to answer the. Or questions. be very good at avoiding them. Either what? Um, oh well, the, the way of avoiding them is to take it head on and say, "I'm I'm not going to answer that question. Explain why." Yeah, quite uh, <laughs> the um, and I think one of the great things about. Uh, the least castle especially is that um it takes and talks to people but again from all different backgrounds leading something very different whether it's a charity whether it's a business whether it's in politics 
There comes points, though, and David, you must have experienced this, whether as leading Sheffield City Council or as Home Secretary. When people are looking at you for leadership, where do you get your strength from? I think there's something inside all of us. There's a tenacity, there's a, an ambition, there's a desire to get things done, to make a difference inside you, whether you're in public service, the charities, or you're driving a business that actually says... This is why I get up in the morning. So you've got to have something internal to yourself. The, the second is the satisfaction you get back because you do from seeing things change for the better. You, you can take pride without being egotistical. There's nothing wrong with being proud of what you do and to want to do it even better. And that's why you need both sharp minds around you in my case it was special advisors as, as well as ministers I pretty well picked my ministers sometimes Tony asked me to take people who I was a little bit iffy about and we had to meld people into the team I was able to pick all my own special advisors and that really did make a difference mm. but in in the end you've got to like what you're doing I mean the the, the people who are un, unhappy in their skin that they they it's very difficult to perform if you're in the wrong business or in the wrong department of a business or if you're really hating teaching or in politics, you, you're just in the wrong department. I was very lucky because education and employment were my first loves in terms of what I wanted to do and I got the job for four years. I'd then come to the conclusion that there were really big challenges for us it turned out even bigger than I expected with the attack on the World Trade Center mm. three months after I became Home Secretary. But the big challenges of security, of reducing crime, of dealing with the development of positive citizenship, which also had a readover in terms of immigration, the kind of things that change people's lives either for the better or the worse. And you don't get everything right. That's the other thing you've got to recognize, which is why... Being part of a broader team, being able to take criticism but not always accept it <laughs> so, because otherwise you blow with the wind, that, that, that's the, the measure. And I think if we can share those traits, those experiences, those different elements through the Leadership Council, if we can get people from very, very different leadership managerial roles and delivery roles to actually be able to share that experience, everyone will gain something from it because that dialogue will inform, it will avoid people reinventing the wheel, it will take people a lot further than the, the niche, for good or ill, the niche that they're in at the moment. Um, David, the very, uh, in a couple of minutes we have left, um, I will be mean and put you on the spot and ask you for predictions perhaps in three things. What will happen in the Labour leadership contest? How will the next few months go for the government after Brexit? Uh, well, after we leave the European Union on the 31st of January. And where will Sheffield Wednesday finish in the league? Lord above. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure which is the most difficult of those <laughs> questions. I, I've already in indicated where my support is for the, the Labour leadership. If we take it at the end of January 2020... Keir Starmer has clearly got a got off to a very very um, strong start. I think, however, it will be very much down to who can reach those parts of the 
Labour Party membership that came in on the back of Jeremy Corbyn's election in 2015 to that post who can be persuaded that what they want to see and the change, the big changes they'd like to enact can only be brought about in any form if we win and we win back the people, the tragic loss of people on our side uh, mm. in December 2019. Uh, and that, that's got to be Lisa Nandi or, or Kia. On, on the, um, the, the next few months... I think that the government will probably do quite well. I, I, I think that there are real dangers ahead in just having 11 months to negotiate trade deals, especially with bellicose pronouncements about we're not going to have alignment, as though alignment in itself is a bad thing when some of it will be very good. So I think there are dangers, but I think there's quite a bit of momentum going with the government at the moment, and that will be reflected in relationships in doing deals in Europe and facing outwards to the rest of the world. Sheffield Wednesday, God help me. I mean, you know, how is it that two of the things that are most important to me, other than my family and loved ones, is football and and politics? I think Sheffield Wednesday will be hard-pressed now to get into the playoffs. If we do, I think we could pull it off. But I am really reluctant and I think on that prediction, your reputation will be judged. Lord Blunkett, thank you very much for joining us God today. God bless you, Jonathan. <laughs> this has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland its parent company, or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.